0: This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu
1: well we have been looking at theological turning points and we looked at the new testament canon as a crucial turning point then we looked at the trinity another crucial turning point and then we looked at Christology absolutely essential and within the development of Christology we looked at a couple of controversies the Apollinarian controversy where Apollinarius seems to have affirmed the deity of Christ but he didn't quite get the humanity bit right And then we looked at Nestorius, who had troubles of his own. He did not see that there are two natures united in one person. And so now we come to the third and final Christological controversy, the Eutychian controversy. Uh, I say 449, that's an approximate date. That's the date of one of the major uh, councils. A intro. That's not very straight. Did I make it worse? Sorry. Sorry. Cyril, you will remember, had triumphed over Nestorius. But later on, he had signed a compromise statement in 433 A.D. And one would have hoped... That, having given in a little, that the controversy would have then ended, but it did not. Cyril himself continued to do battle against the followers of Nestorius. You recall also that the Nestorian controversy was not merely a personal feud between Nestorius and Cyril; it was also. <clears throat> a controversy between two schools of thought the Alexandrian school and the Antiochian school quickly the Alexandrian school represented by Cyril of Alexandria stressed the unity of the two natures of Christ also stressed his deity the Antiochian school represented by Nestorius on the other hand stressed the differences between the two natures in Christ and tended to concentrate on Christ's humanity so that's where we are we thought the controversy might be over but it's not and then Cyril the old mean man himself died in 444 AD and one might then think that because this, this vicious man who is doggedly pursued Nestorius and his followers, that once he died, perhaps the controversy would end. But it did not. And now that brings us to the continuation of the controversy. B. Cyril, after he died, was succeeded in Alexandria by a chap of the name of... Did I spell that right? It's Dioscorus. I've got it misprinted here. Dioscorus. Listen to what Schaff says of Dioscorus. He surpassed Cyril in all his bad qualities, while he fell far behind him in intellect and in theological capacity. Schaff goes on to say, He that is... Dioscorus was a man of unbounded ambition and stormy passion. But it was not Dioscorus who becomes the primary spearhead for this later controversy. That belongs to a fellow by the name of Eutyches, E-U-T-Y-C-H-E-S. And he came to epitomize The Alexandrian school. Like Cyril, Eutyches stressed the divine in Christ to the neglect of the human. Eutyches went so far as to say this After his incarnation, Christ has only one nature. After His incarnation, Christ has only one nature. And that is a divine nature. Hence, the stress on the divine side of Christ. He does not want to talk about two natures, but one nature. And that leads Him to make such affirmations as, God was born. Mary was Theotokos. God suffered, God was crucified, and God died after His incarnation. If Christ has only one nature, and that nature is divine, then it leads to some rather bold statements. Eutyches probably needs to be seen as someone who takes some of the basic stresses and emphases of the Alexandrian school to an extreme. We don't want to see him as a a mainstream Alexandrian, but as someone who takes some of the basic stresses and pushes them to their limit and indeed beyond. So who was Eutyches? He was... Let me see if I can pronounce this. This is going to be a hard one. An Archimandrite... Now, you know, that's just the kind of word that I'm inclined to ask you about on a final exam. So, if I were you, I'd put a big red circle around that and a star as a word that you ought to know. Maybe an extra credit if you spell it right. Archimandrite. He was an Archimandrite in Constantinople. What is an Archimandrite? Well... It's someone who heads up a monastery, not unlike an abbot. And apparently, Eutyches was uh, the leader of a, of a small monastery, a small, uh, good sized monastery in Constantinople, and also a very ardent supporter of Cyril and an opponent of Nestorius. So. Some of the ideas of our friend Eutyches start coming out. He's in a bit of an extremist. And his ideas began to circulate. And the bishop Eusebius of Dorleum, Eusebius of Dorleum, a bishop, hears about the things that Eutychius is teaching. A very extreme form. Of Cyril's views. And so the bishop of Dorleum requests that a synod, a local church meeting, occur to consider the teachings of Eutyches. And so a synod is held in 448 in Constantinople and is presided over by the patriarchal bishop Flavian. You got these names down? Flavian presides over the synod in Constantinople in 448. And why was it called? It was called because there was some concern about the extreme views of Eutyches. The synod met in Constantinople. That's a logical place for it to be held because that's where Eutyches ministers and lives. The synod meets. And they condemn his teachings. And he is deposed from his position as an Archimandrite. The Synod concluded that Christ, after his incarnation, had two natures in one hypostasis, or one substance, one person. They concluded precisely the opposite of of what Eutyches had been teaching, that Christ after the incarnation had two natures in one person. Well, you might think that when a patriarchal bishop calls a local church meeting and condemns someone, that the story would be over. Not so. The condemnation of Eutyches did not end the controversy. So now you have two parties You have Eutyches, Who is supported by Dioscorus And they are fighting against Eusebius and Flavian Flavian having presided over this Has become now a bad guy Again, So it's these two against these two Now what's going on about this time Is they're trying to get leverage Against the other side and so what they do is they both appeal to the bishop, the patriarchal bishop at Rome, Leo I. They ask Leo for what he, for his judgment on the matter. Was Eutyches right? Was he an extremist? Should he be condemned? And so they appeal to Leo. Leo does not quickly give a response. And so the battle rages. Whether or not Eutyches should be condemned, now Eutyches had an ace in the hole. With all of this going on, he also had a very, very close ally, who just happened to be the senior advisor to Emperor Theodosius II. Eutyches had a close ally in a man named. Okay, let me say this. Chrysopheus. Chrysopheus Yeah, no there's not that one there doesn't mean anything Chrysopheus was an advisor to the Emperor this is a man in a, an ideal political situation he's able to influence. A rather weak emperor, Theodosius II, is recognized as generally a really a, a, a quite weak emperor, and he is under the influence. His senior advisor is Crisipius. Crucif- Crucif- it's hard, and so that gives Eutyches his ace in the hole. So even though Crisipius uh, even though Eutyches, excuse me, has been condemned by the patriarchal bishop of Constantinople, he gets another hearing because Crucifix persuades Theodosius to again look into the matter of Eutyches' teaching. And so, Theodosius II takes it upon himself to call another church council to meet in Ephesus. It is called the Second Council of Ephesus of four hundred forty nine AD. Second Council of Ephesus. If you thought things were bad in the council headed up by Cyril, will you hear about the council headed up by Dioscorus? some 135 bishops gathered together in Ephesus, having been called by Emperor Theodosius II, and it's presided over by Dioscorus, the advocate of Eutyches and the successor of Cyril of Alexandria. So what we have here, in many respects, is a continuation of the Nestorian controversy. Certainly some of the personalities... The, the same viewpoints are still evident. Dioscorus, uh, I think I have it up here. It's D-I-O-S-C-O-R-U-S. I didn't make these names up, by the way. Listen to this council, what happens. Dioscorus is a man who has no hesitation about using violence to get what he wants. He is brutal and violent at the Second Council of Ephesus in 449. And he got exactly what he wanted. One, an exoneration of Eutyches, and the condemnation of Flavian, Bishop of Constantinople. Well, what had happened? You remember that both parties had appealed to Leo I in Rome so he would render a judgment about the teaching of Eutyches. Well, just when the council was meeting, the letter from Leo I comes. It's called the Tome of Leo I. That's a technical phrase, it's really just a letter. But if you read in the history books, it'll always call it the famous letter, is called the Tome of Leo, Leo I. He is the Bishop of Rome. Uh, some people are beginning to start calling him the Pope at this point. Uh, incidentally, Leo I uh, is a very significant person in lots of ways. But he is, if not the first, he's certainly one of the earliest bishops of Rome who claim special uh, preeminence over other bishops. He not only believed this in theory, but in practice. And so it suited him very well for these warring factions to appeal to him to resolve it. And of course, he expected that when his decision was read at the Second Council of Ephesus, that that would settle the matter. One small problem. Dioscorus was in charge, and he would not permit the tome of Leo to be read. Do you know why? Because the tome condemned Eutyches in no uncertain terms. But Dioscorus, unscrupulous Dioscorus, would not let the tome be read. poor Flavian also attended the bishop of Rome attended this council and he was not permitted to speak in his defense or in the defense of uh, those who opposed Eutyches. you talk about heavy handed Dioscorus is the epitome he is the model of heavy handedness so they then bring Eutyches and they examine him. They say, What is it that you believe? What is everybody all concerned about? And Eutyches produces documents, ancient patristic documents from the early church, he says, that support his view. The only problem is they're forged. And Dioscorus. Uh, at one point is taking part in a direct verbal examination of Eutyches, and having heard Eutyches' explanation of his viewpoint, then turns to the group of a hundred and so bishops and says, Is this not what we all believe? Throwing all his power and his authority as a presiding bishop of this council behind Eutyches. The fact of the matter is is that most of the bishops were terribly intimidated by this man who had armed guards under his command. And, as we'll see, did not hesitate to engage in violence. Eutyches was exonerated. He had passed muster with Dioscorus for sure. Now, Dioscorus was not simply satisfied to exonerate Eutyches, but he proceeded to depose Flavian, the patriarchal bishop of Constantinople, and says, Flavian, you're out. Flavian tried to protest, but was shouted down. And that's when Dioscorus sent his armed guards to go over and to beat Flavian senseless. In fact, Flavian never recovered and a few months later died. So the bishop of Alexandria murdered the bishop of Constantinople. That's what we have here. And I think the brutality of Dioscorus clearly surpasses that of Cyril, as bad as Cyril was. But before he died, Flavian did something that I find interesting. That is, he gave another name to the Second Council of Ephesus. He called it the Robber Council. That's the English translation of a Latin word, leo, uh Latrocinium, And really what it means is the council of brigands. And that just about captures the essence of the second council of Ephesus. A bunch of brigands headed up by Dioscorus. Well, that was among the last things that Flavian ever did, is to give an accurate assessment, an accurate... Uh, Characterization of the Second Council of Ephesus. Well, anybody who acts in such a heavy handed way, incidentally, I I notice here I've got Theodoret up. Theodoret was a uh, bishop of Cyprus who opposed uh, Eutyches, and he too was condemned because he had written some material against Eutyches. So just note, Theodoret was on the losing side. At the Second Council of Ephesus. Not particularly important. Uh, he's the Bishop of Cyprus. He was condemned. That's right. Uh, see, when Dioscorus has an enemy, he goes after everybody and he deposes them all and tries to run them out of town. He was a smart man. Uh, Leo, I mean, I don't know if there was any particular reason why he didn't come, uh, it has been the case on on several of these major ecumenical councils for the the Bishop of Rome does not ordinarily attend in these early churches. He typically will send representatives, and that's what he did here as well. Uh, That happened in in the earlier ecumenical councils, Uh, the Bishop of Rome. And again, what we see here is there is an emerging sense by the Bishop of Rome that he is uh, the single leader and he you know, he's not going to condescend to come under, to come under a council uh, we're getting a, a self-conscious sense here of these various places, particularly Leo I that he is not uh, subject to the decisions of a council and so what he does he sends a representative well you wonder how things could get worse what would happen after all this well, we come now sort of in between here. Leo the I, yes? It's not quite clear uh, to me when
0: did that moral decline uh, start
1: at the The moral decline yes. of discourse? Well, well,
0: we're well, talking about bishops who the church.
1: Right,
0: well, right. The bloom of Christianity.
1: And... Yeah. Well, one of the things that you will learn. Is that uh, just because someone becomes a bishop doesn't mean that they are always godly? Uh, you will find, for example, and I think he's retired now, but the Bishop of Durham, an Anglican bishop, uh, is a man who denied, and I presumably continues to deny, the deity of Christ. So bishops uh, are not always Christians. And it would appear that in this case, you have someone like Dioscorus who does not give any evidence of being a genuine Christian. Uh, I mean, there's a bigger question here, and that is that human beings are fallible. And you find in the church, you find people who get involved in the church, who knows why. Uh, perhaps they are self deluded, think, thinking perhaps they are Christians, but they are not. And sometimes, because of all kinds of reasons, end up in positions of power. It is, I think most of us are aware that there are lots and lots of people who uh, say, describe themselves as ministers of the gospel. Uh, I don't want to get into a long thing here, but, but there, are, there have been a number of TV preachers in our country who say the most ridiculous things that that really do deny historic Christianity? So uh, that's just the case, and so you have, you you know you do have brutal people, and and I think it's fair to say you know that that uh, this is not something that is is uh, peculiarly Catholic. You know, this is not a Catholic Protestant kind of thing. Uh, I'm trying to think of, of an example offhand. But at any rate, there, there, there's, well,
0: the there Bishop that, of Durham. There is no principle or crucial difference between what's going now here in America and that
1: time. I, I would say yes. Sin nature and sinful human beings continue to uh, get into positions of power. And sometimes they are corrupted you know the old, the old saying: "The power corrupts." I, I I really think that's true. I think that's true, frankly, of of even evangelical leaders. Uh, you know, it it is a it's a dangerous thing to be a leader, and if that's even true in evangelicalism, uh, people get you know when you become a national sort of spokesperson, whether it's for you know, an evangelical spokesperson, but you're a, a theologian or something. Uh, that's a pretty heady thing to be, and that really works on your soul. I, I don't know that I would wish that on anybody to become a leader. Better well, this is my opinion, so take it for what it's worth. Better to labor in a small church, preaching the gospel day in and day out, doing what is right, ministering to people who are sick. Than take it upon your shoulders to become some sort of, you know, to aspire to be some sort of national leader, celebrity, if you will, some Christian celebrity. Uh, There's a lot of pressure that comes with that, and there are lots of sacrifices that all too often are made. Uh, I say that partly from some uh, uh, experiences that I've known. I know of, and I'm not going to mention any names, but I know of one very prominent evangelical reformed leader in this country. And uh, I happened to be in a situation where I got to know uh, members of his family, children. And man, oh man, those kids were messed up. And when you ask and you probe a little bit, you find out that that major evangelical leader... Reformed leader is so busy going off being a leader that he has sacrificed the most precious thing he has, it would appear. Now, I know it's it's not that simple, but leadership can be a very dangerous thing. And I'm not sure if that is something that we ought to aspire to. If the Lord calls us to that, well maybe we have to do it against our will perhaps but I'm not sure that's the best thing to aspire to that's my opinion take it for what it's worth when there no voices crying out. oh there are voices everywhere crying out in this situation of it course well you're talking big powerful people you're talking bishops against bishops so and each group I mean are associated with schools of thought the Alexandrian school the Antiochian school so you've got warring factions So yes, there are people crying out all over the place.
0: This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.